All right, organization of the human brain, brain anatomy. Um, the human brain has been referred to as the most complexly organized matter that we've ever discovered. Um, so if you have trouble with learning about the brain and how it works and parts of it, you're not alone. <laughs> um, this is uh, this is complex stuff, and um, uh, and there's still a lot that we don't know about how human brains work. Um, what I wanted to do is to set out kind of uh, some uh, some overall principles for you related to organization of the brain, um, to um, to show you some patterns in things, to show you essentially, you know, that things aren't just thrown in there haphazardly. There is some structure and organization to things that I think can make it make more sense. The other thing I wanted to tell you a little bit about is how we know about some of these parts of the brain and what they do, right? Because that helps to explain uh, how they got such weird names for some of these parts and other things like that, okay? So let's start there, actually. Um, <clears throat> human beings have known for a long, long time that the brain is where it's at for understanding uh, human thought, memory, personality, uh, control of the body, a lot of things like that. They've known that. Um, and they knew that because people have gotten brain damage for a long time, and and uh, they can see the results of uh, of what happens with that. And so, for a long time, people knew that the brain was the seat of our intellect and memory and all that other stuff. However, they had almost no way to be able to figure out how that could work. For centuries, really, all scientists could do would be to look at dead brains. Um, they could, uh, you know, do an autopsy on a dead brain, study it, you know, to try to figure out the parts. And that's about all they could do, but they did it. Um, it can be difficult looking at a dead brain to even tell sometimes where some parts of the brain end and the next part begins, because a lot of the tissue is just the same kind of consistency and color and stuff like that. It can be hard to tell. Um, but, um, you know, they took apart a lot of brains and they named the parts. And so, uh, that's an important thing to know. Most of the uh, names, just about all of the names, that we have for component parts of the brain were given to those parts of the brain hundreds of years ago, long before anybody had any idea what those parts of the brain actually do. So, unfortunately for you and me today, that means that the names of the parts of the brain have almost nothing, if anything at all, uh, I can't think of anything, um, <clears throat> nothing to do with what those parts of the brain do. Uh, generally speaking, in neuroanatomy, what they did in naming parts of the brain and other parts of the nervous system, well, they do this a lot in anatomy anyway, but uh, is either name things according to just what it happens to look like, um, or its location relative to other things. So, for instance, for the first one, for, uh, you know, just what it happens to look like, you know, there's a part of your brain that, um, that you studied about in this chapter that's called the hippocampus. Well, hippocampus is apparently Greek for seahorse, and so somebody a long time ago, you know, thought it looked like a seahorse. It bore some resemblance to it, and they, so they called it the hippocampus. Um, you know, there's another part in the brain uh, in this chapter called the substantia nigra, uh, which I guess is um, from Latin, uh, and it just means black stuff. That's pretty much literally what it means, black stuff. Um, uh, of course, they usually use Latin and Greek because that's cool, but, um, but, um, but they named them often for just what it happened to look like. The second naming convention that, um, that they adopted often was uh, where it was located with reference to other stuff. So things might be named, you know, let's see, the... Um, um, uh, 
I'm thinking of, I'm trying to think of one that you have in here. The well, okay, the hypothalamus. Uh, hypothalamus is, uh, hypo means below, it's just below the thalamus. The hypothalamus and the thalamus, yeah, they communicate, but they're separate parts. Um, but the hypothalamus is named just for its location relative to the thalamus, right? Because it's just below it. Um, we'll see later on in the next chapter, we'll look at, uh, well, a uh, chapter later this week, you'll look at um, uh, the... Um, <clears throat> <laughs> um, I'm blanking on the name now. The uh, suprachiasmatic nucleus. Ah, you see, see why I forgot that one. Uh, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is part of the hypothalamus, actually, uh, and it's named for its location. It's just above the optic chiasm, which is the crossing of the optic nerves. Right. So usually, in one way or another, the names of brain areas and parts have something to do with what they look like, whether that be usually Latin or Greek roots. Um, but if you know that, that makes it easier, um, and, or the location that it's found in, right? So the names really don't relate to uh, functions of things. Now, the next way that they were able to study parts of the brain was to see what happens if a part of the brain were destroyed. Uh, and so this would be lesioning studies. And, um, and in order to do lesioning studies, they had, uh, medicine had to advance to the stage where they could do surgery on animals and have the animals survive for some time after the surgery, right? So essentially they would, um, uh, they would do a study, remove or damage or cut out or whatever, a small part of the brain, have the animal recover from uh, the anesthesia or whatever, uh, and then see what effect there was on the animal's behavior. So damage studies or lesioning studies, these were done for a long time in order to try to figure out how parts of the brain work. And they told us a lot. Now, uh, a lesioning study doesn't tell you that that's the only part of the brain that's involved in that function. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's say that uh, in a lesioning study, they destroyed a very small part of a rat's brain. And after recovering from surgery, the rat ate voraciously and never stopped eating. Um, and so they concluded that that part of the brain that had been destroyed had something to do with, um, well, turning off hunger mechanisms, essentially mechanisms of satiety, that is, uh, feelings of fullness to stop eating. Uh, anyway, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only part of the brain that does it, right? Um, but, um, but that one certainly would be involved. Um, damage studies uh, wouldn't have been done with human beings because the damage doesn't really heal uh, in uh, damaging the nervous system. However, there have certainly been cases of where people have encountered damage to their brain, um, <clears throat> like Phineas Gage and his damage to his prefrontal cortex, um, <clears throat> and, uh, and those kind of experiences can be informative to tell us some things about what those parts of the brain did, right? This, by the way, is a really good way of remembering the functions of different parts of the human brain. And that's to think of it in terms of if that part were taken offline, if that part were damaged or removed, and everything else was still intact, what would go wrong, right? And that tells you something about what that part of the brain uh, normally does, right? Uh, so damage studies. Now, um, <clears throat> Uh, our understanding of the human brain and how it works uh, advanced tremendously once we were able to see into brains that were living while they were in action. Uh, so not just looking at the structures, but looking at how brains function. So particularly things like PET scans and functional MRIs, 
uh, functional MRI was uh, was a big breakthrough in brain uh, research because it's a lot cheaper and easier than PET scans, but allowed you to have somebody sitting in an MRI machine while they're being monitored, and you ask them to do things like tell me a story about your grandma, or put these words in alphabetical order, or do these math problems, and we can actively we can actually see which parts of the brain are involved in doing those kind of functions. Right, so we know a lot about uh, uh, how the brain functions and how parts of the brain function together. Okay, so let's look at overall organization of the brain. Um, the human brain is separated into three major regions, the hindbrain, the midbrain, and the forebrain, right? I know you know this. However, this is a really important uh, thing to, um, to keep straight. It's kind of the, um, the reason for why we're separated into those three parts. Now, if you were to just look at a human brain and look at these three parts of hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain, you'd be you'd probably be like, whoa, whoa, who came up with this? This doesn't make any sense. You know, there's just this really tiny bit that's midbrain, and then almost all of it is forebrain, and there's, you know, some structures down at the bottom that are hindbrain. You know, wouldn't you separate it more evenly among these parts? Well, <clears throat> um, the reason that it's separated that way is for comparison across species. So that essentially, um, we can look at a lot of different kinds of animal brains and separate them into hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain, and look at analogous structures in those different regions. And so human brains are very different than a lot of other animal brains, primarily in their forebrain development. You see, the parts of the brain that humans have in common with uh, most other animals are in the back, in the hindbrain. The hindbrain and forebrain in a human uh, have been ref together referred to as our reptilian brain, because essentially our hindbrain and forebrain, I'm sorry, our hindbrain and midbrain, the back two, uh, are are very much like a reptile's brain, an alligator or a snake uh, brain. Um, <clears throat> that um, you know, there's some basic life support functions. There's things about balance and movement and respiration that just about any animal that moves is going to need. However, what reptiles don't have is the uh, forebrain structures that are built on top of that. Now, if we were to go up in the phylogenetic scale from reptiles to mammals, then we're, we're going to see more and more hindbrain. Um, <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, I messed that up. More and more forebrain developing. So in the front of the brain, developing more and more as we go up to more complex animals, up the phylogenetic scale until we reach humans. We're at the highest end of that phylogenetic scale, and so that's why we have so much forebrain, and that's one of the major things that uh, is different in our brain than other animals. If we were to look at other animals that we're most closely related to, like chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, um, they're going to have a lot of forebrain. Uh, you know, a lot of similar forebrain structures to ours, uh, and you're certainly going to see similarities, but they're not going to be have as much forebrain, and certainly not in the very front of the forebrain, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part that's most uniquely human, right? So, if you keep that sort of evolutionary scale in mind as you look at parts of the brain going from the back to the front, hindbrain to midbrain to forebrain, then that's going to make sense as far as to what those brain functions are involved in. At the very back and bottom of the brain, in the hindbrain, we've got structures there, again, that are pretty much crucial to life support. Um, breathing, posture, uh, balance, movement, uh, things like that, right, that any animal that moves is going to need. As we move further up, 
to the forebrain structures. Um, then we get to more complex stuff uh, that um, uh, that some of the more primitive kinds of animals aren't going to have. That's going to be different parts of the brain. Uh, so, for example, animals like if you have a pet dog, I've got my dog right here. Um, uh, she's sleeping because that's what she does. Uh, but um, uh, my dog has a relatively a pretty big midbrain. So does your dog. Uh, dog's midbrains are involved in a lot of things like being able to localize odors in three-dimensional space, right? Dogs are really good at that. Humans, not so much, right? Uh, our midbrains are relatively smaller, but we've got a lot of forebrain um, uh, structure. So, uh, hindbrain in the back and bottom, midbrain in the middle, forebrain at the front and top. Now, if, um, if it doesn't make sense to look at this as linear, um, because brains don't really look like a straight line thing, right? They look like a lump of stuff. Consider that when the, uh, when the brain is developing, very, very early on uh, in human development, in the three weeks or so after conception, um, probably before mom even knows that she's pregnant, uh, the human nervous system is starting to develop um, in that developing uh, system. And it starts off as a tube. It is linear at that point. It's a long tube. Uh, and it starts to thicken up at one end. That's eventually going to become the brain. Later on in, in that development, that thick end is going to fold over the top of that tube. And so you've got the thickening of the um, uh, high, the forebrain sitting on top of the spinal column, uh, spinal cord, uh, which is going to be most of uh, what was left from the um, uh, the neural tube. So if you can imagine taking an adult human brain and kind of unfolding it, then you've got those structures now linear, where the forebrain is the big stuff at the top and front, midbrain in the middle, forebrain towards, I'm sorry, hindbrain towards the back of that, and then the spinal cord uh, going behind that. Okay, now, <clears throat> um, upon, on gross anatomy, there's go, it's important to keep this structure, uh, hindbrain, midbrain, and forebrain, um, uh, as a way of keeping track of which parts of the brain are involved in doing what kinds of activities. And so use that organization to organize your studying of things, that there are certain parts of the brain in the hindbrain to know about and their functions, some parts in the midbrain, some parts in the forebrain to know about. Uh, and that's a useful way to look at it. 